the Americhicks with Molly Votes and Kim Monson. The most important story. They are like this newfound, off-hinged part of the left. Even Chuck Schumer's pushing back on. The latest in politics and world affairs. The buck is stopping with Trump. The different administrations prior to him have been kicking the can down the road on a number of issues. And opinions and ideas that prepare you to tackle the day ahead. The heart of this is, is the U.S. Constitution a progressive document, or is it something that should be looked at as an original document? It's the Americhicks, Molly and Kim. Because face it, ideas matter. Because ideas matter. Hey, welcome to the AmeriChicks with Molly Vote and Kim Munson. We have a very special show planned for you today. We will be talking with Ann Garrison. She was a child who grew up in Britain during the Battle of Britain. And so this is part of our World War II project. And the project actually precipitated from a trip that Molly and I took in 2016 with a team that took four D-Day veterans back to Normandy in uh, celebration of D-Day. It truly changed our lives, and we came back realizing how important these stories are to hear and to learn about. And so today, this story with Ann Garrison will truly touch your heart. And just a quick quick note on that. If you are listening to this show and you are a World War II vet or you know somebody who is a World War II vet that fought in the European theater that has not been back yet to visit since the war, uh, Denver Pell is looking for one more person to take. So this year for to this D-Day. Year, huh? To wow. D-Day. So okay. it's amazing to go back because the veterans get really get uh, just love and respect and, and, and they're just so cherished over there. They don't get that over here as much, I don't think. So if you know somebody, let us know at our website, AmeriChicks.com. Perfect. And uh, another thing, all of our shows are archived on our website, AmeriChicks.com. And be sure and follow or subscribe our SoundCloud or iTunes so that you know when each of these shows are being posted and so that you can hear them. But they're all right there. That is AmeriChicks.com. Mm-hmm. And the reason we're doing this show, and we're gonna, today we're going to be talking with Ann Garrison, but World War II, it was like many different wars because it was in different locations, different lands, different countries. There were different enemies, uh, enemies, different, you know, mm-hmm. guns that we were fighting. And, you know, the weather, it, it was so, so crazy that, that every time we, we talk to somebody else who was there, we get a different story. And it's, it's so much better than a history book. So Anne Garrison actually grew up in London during the Second World War. And we're going to talk to her about her experience. Right. So Anne Garrison, welcome. It's great to have you with the AmeriChicks, Molly and Kim. Thank you so much for inviting me. And you have written a wonderful piece, as, soon, as Seen Through the Eyes of a Child. So let's start at the beginning. I, go ahead. All right. Well, um, I was born just outside London, and um, I came into the world about three years before the World War II began, which was in, uh, you know, 1939. And um, at that time, at that time, England had been in a treaty with Poland and other countries. It was called the Treaty of Versailles. And Germany went ahead and attacked Poland. So it was a matter of honor as members of that treaty that England had to respond and attack Germany on behalf of Poland. So we were, of course, very, very poorly prepared to fight what was to become a world war. We didn't know that at the time, of course. Germany had been planning for a long time and had, uh, with their usual efficiency, had um, air superiority with their beautifully engineered planes like the Messerschmitt and the Focke-Wulf, not to mention all the tanks, ships, guns, and everything else that goes into making a successful war. And, of course, uh, it was later said of the British that we simply didn't know that we were beaten, so we sort of just battled (laughs) on uh, with our backs against the wall, as it were. 
And God bless the USA, who, uh, of course, entered in at uh, some point in that conflict and gave us such help, and we couldn't have done it without you. So there you go. You're well, part of this story. Well, <laughs> definitely. The, the U.S. sat on the sidelines for a while, though. I know Churchill was, was very frustrated. And uh, since we have talked last, I've done an additional amount of research. I've learned so much, and so the piece that you uh, have written really resonates even more with me now. But did you know anything about Dunkirk as a child? Had you heard anything about uh, what had happened with the British soldiers being, you know, up against the uh, uh, channel? Yes, I, I, I am familiar with that. And, of course, um, all, everything came over by radio and so forth. So it was, it was spoken, and we could only just imagine what was taking place. But um, Churchill called it a miracle because... It was a battle, but it was also one of the most phenomenal evacuations that had ever been seen. Uh, of course, we were, the Allies were fighting the Nazis, and uh, uh, Germany had uh, taken over France, as it had the smaller countries like Holland and Poland and all of those. So France has fallen before them, and um, the, the British had gone in to help, but were not a match for the Nazi uh, highly trained, uh, well-equipped soldiers in Germany. So anyway, long story short, then France, um, uh, they were being pushed back into the water, as it were. They couldn't go forward because they had the Germans. If they went backwards, they were in the water, so they were at a point of no return. The beach is very shallow there, so naval ships uh, can't get in to pick them up at that point. So they were literally stranded, and we were desperate. How do we get our men off? How do we save the lives of these troops? And then the British people, they just rallied. They got all their little rowboats and fishing <laughs> boats and leisure craft and anything that floated. I'm sure they had rafts or whatever. But anyway, whatever they had, they took. And they uh, went to this beachhead there, and they took uh, with them between 800 and 1,200 boats were were part and parcel of that evacuation. Um, and then they just simply went back and forth, back and forth, taking them, as many men as they could and ferrying them to the deeper part of the channel where the naval ships were uh, because they would have bottomed out to come mm -hmm. in that close. And, and then they would drop them off and they would go back and get another load. And the amazing thing is that these people moved more than 300,000 troops and rescued them with just ordinary citizens and just little bitty boats. So, you know, it was a great act of gallantry. And Churchill's rousing speech given to Parliament on June 4th was considered a turning point in the morale because the British felt if they could pull off the impossible, they could win the war. <laughs> yeah. you know? so, and and they, were, they were right. And it's oh. important to note that if, in fact, the British people had not gotten those troops off of that beach, that that was basically the British military. And it would have been very easy then for Hitler to invade Britain. And it had been, what, centuries since Britain had been invaded? Absolutely. 1066 was the last time that we were invaded uh, successfully, and that was William the Conqueror that did that. So we, we weren't looking for a repeat on that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. I, but I guess not. Now, you know, Anne, one thing that we have never asked you, and, and you were really a, a war bride. We're kind of no, jumping ahead no. a little bit. But oh, no. You, no, nowhere near. I was um, born in 1936. Oh, okay. So war broke out in 1939, so I was 
three and I was nine when the war ended. Okay. So, um, no, I was a long way off being a bride. Another 12 years before I met my husband, I was 21 at that time. Okay. And um, so that, that was all. Uh, <laughs> and was he from the United States? Sorry? Was he from the United States? Yes, he was an American um, in st- with the uh, American Air Force and stationed uh, with the Strategic Air Command uh, in a town close by me. Okay, and then you, uh, you got married and moved to America then? We did, and then we subsequently were sent to be stationed in Germany for three years, and we really learned a lot there and enjoyed that time with the German people, and they had a story to tell as well, because like us, they are just subject to their government, whatever the government decides is what the people have to do, and their government was, as you know, very corrupt with Hitler at the head and so forth, so um, they really didn't want to be bombed every night either, but the Allied bombing did a good job on them as well so you know right. it was uh, it was understanding the other side of the coin as it were to be there right you know Anne, and I, you mentioned I some, you mentioned just a, a quick point I'd like people to think about for just a minute that the the German the everyday German person probably wasn't really jazzed about what their government was doing uh, but but it was what their government was doing and that's why it's so important in America today that we remain a government of the people by the people as yes. uh, put into our constitution very much so, and, and I'm sure you have read many stories, as have I, about people who lived in the towns surrounding some of the concentration camps and the stench from that for the burning of the bodies and things like that. I mean, they couldn't have known initially what, what it was. I mean, nobody went on, on into Auschwitz from the outside like that. So, you know, and yet when the war was over and the, um, the troops marched the people from the villages through, I mean, some of them went home and hanged themselves, you know, I mean, they were just desolate. And I saw, I heard stories, and I think I mentioned it, um, in the little village we were staying in, in Germany, um, our landlady had been a 17-year-old girl, and they had um, troops who were wounded, that they were taking care of in their homes, because there was not enough hospitals and things around to care for them. And this was German troops? These were German troops, right. And so, um, you know, here comes the Americans with their big tanks and so forth. And so the German soldiers that were able-bodied blew up the bridge leading into the village so that the tanks couldn't come in. And then they escaped through the forests, because it's the Black Forest region that I was in, uh, to their regiments, leaving the wounded in the care of the ordinary citizen. And so um, my landlady told me how she had nursed her soldier back to health and then in the dead of night seen him into the forest to go back and join his regiment and I thought to myself well I'd have done that I'd have done that same thing for one of our troops you know Mm -hmm. so um, we're just people (laughs) subject to our government exactly totally right and you want to protect you've got to be able to protect yourselves because regardless of which side you're on if you're being bombed you want somebody to be able to help stop that bombing right and Garrison let's go back a little further if, if you don't mind i want to talk about you know your childhood you said that you grew up about 15 miles outside of london and obviously you were three years old when the war started can you describe just what did, what you heard and what you saw and what was the life like during the war as a little girl in britain right well it was night and day bombing not so much at the very beginning but as the war went on by about 1940 of course the battle of britain was fought at that time and that was something that was literally fought over our heads 
you know, um, it was daytime, the sirens would go off and people would run for shelters or go for cover, and then the, the, the uh, sirens would say all clear and we could all come out again. And of course, at nighttime, it, that was the best time for bombing because it was dark and they could bomb us under cover of night. And I uh, wanted to share with you that um, a little bit about the bombing runs okay. that took place. Um, they were, it was just about 21 miles across the English Channel, and they were already, they'd taken France, so they were in command in France. And you can stand in Dover, which is in England, and look across to Calais, which is in France, and it's just a 21-mile strip of water. And we could see their gun emplacements and their uh, ships and their, you know, equipment and so forth. And we knew they were only 21 miles away. And that was very frightening, you know. Um, and there was a time that we knew when there was going to be an invasion. It was planned. The date was set. And they were coming. And we knew it was round about the time of that, of that in, supposed invasion. And then um, God sent the fog. And, you know, we, we really struggled with the fog in England because of coal-burning fires and things of that nature. We had a really nasty yellow fog that was, we used to call a pea super. And one of these pea supers invaded us for about two or three days. And in that time, um, with the help of America, we turned it around and, and we were able to, uh, you know, withstand that. So they never came across. But in the meantime, the nightly bombing runs, what they would do was it would take 20 minutes to cross the channel in one of their aircraft. They would send over um, some airplanes that would drop incendiary flares. And this would constitute their bombing run for that night. So they would literally light you up and you knew you were for it. So, of course, we, we learned very quickly that we had to get those fires out. Now, we didn't know what an incendiary was, and we didn't know that it couldn't be put out by water, that it had to be smothered or use of sand or something like that to put it out. And we had 20 minutes to do it before the actual bombers came over and dropped their load. So it was a race with the air raid wardens and whoever was able to help to get those incendiary flares put out before the bombing started. Wow. And Garrison... Was there was there the technology at that point? I, I know that you could see that they were coming, and you could obviously see uh, the flares drop. But was there any warning before that 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 the military could pick up that they knew it was coming, so they knew where to send the fire? I mean, I guess not even fire trucks, because you say the water wouldn't even put out these flares. No, that's right. I think we had um, sort of aerial lights. They I forget what they called them now, but they were. Uh, lights that could were on a long sort of pole-like thing that could shoot up into the air the, the, and light the sky up a little bit for us. But obviously, you you don't want to let them know where you are, and so you don't search for them. But you can hear them coming, and you know perhaps what direction they're coming. So you just took cover. We had air raid shelters out in the streets. We had them in buildings and things like that. My mother never took me into one of those places, and I won't tell you what she said about them, because, <laughs> but she didn't like the idea of it at all. And we were alone because my dad worked for de Havilland's Aircraft Company, and he was making the Spitfire at that time. So he was working nights to do that. 
And the Spitfire, as you know, really won the Battle of Britain for us mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, the overhead thing because the Battle of Britain uh, was, uh, you know, literally fought over our heads there. And we were able, with the help of the Spitfire, which was so little and so fast, to um, make a quick turnaround. So if you can imagine in olden times when knights would joust, you know, they would ride their horses mm-hmm. with their jousting uh, poles and, and try to knock each other off the horse. Well, we could come up to uh, one of their very superior aircraft like a Messerschmitt and fire on them and they would fire on us, of course, and then we would pass. And then you had to turn around and come back for the next foray. Well, of course, the Spitfire could make a turn on a dime, could come up behind the Messerschmitt and knock it down, even though it was far more, you know, superior air-wise than we had. But anyway, the Spitfire was really a big help in winning the war in that regard. Well, we'll ask some more questions about the Spitfire in a moment. I think we're going to go to break, Ann Garrison. I would like to hear some of your thoughts about Churchill. One of the quotes that you had given was, Churchill said that it was lucky the Germans were such bad shots, but I think partly the British people might uh, have had something to do with that. So when we come back, we're going to ask you a little bit about Churchill. Hi, welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project. This is Molly Vogt. I'm Kim Munson. And we are so glad that you're with us. And please check out our website, AmeriChicks.com, for for all of our past World War II shows. We've got many, many, many. And if you have a World War II veteran who'd like to share their story, contact us through the website. We'd love to get them on here as well. And also on our show, we'd like to promote veteran-owned businesses. So if you're a veteran that owns a business, reach out to the AmeriChicks again on our website, AmeriChicks.com, and let us know. And uh, so let's get back. So we're talking with Ann Gary. And Anne grew up in Britain in uh, just 15 minutes outside of London in World War II. And so we're hearing her stories. And in the beginning, we were talking a little bit about the the, uh, the flares that were dropped, the bombers that were coming. They could actually see them coming towards them. Watch how frightening is it to know that you're about to be attacked and there's nothing you can do uh, until, you know, until the, the flares land and try to get them out as fast as possible. That's that's I cannot even imagine, especially the fact that you can't even use water to put out the flares. I cannot imagine how frightening that would have been, Anne. But before we went to break, Kim was uh, started to ask you about Winston Churchill. Tell us your thoughts on Winston Churchill. Well, um, he's always been a great figure in, in our history. I mean, from the time that he rose to fame, which, of course, was during the war, he was educated in Harrow, which is my hometown, and the famous Harrovian school where people like um, King Hussein of the Jordan was being educated when I was going to school at that time. I used to pass him by and so forth. But, of course, Winnie was a bit before my time. So, anyway, he um, had a good education, but he was evidently a slow learner. And he didn't come into his own until later in life. And he was a great artist, a great spokesman, and a great writer. So all of that, he was the man for the job at that time in our history. He just simply was. Um, He was not very well liked by most people, mostly because he was a straight shooter and he spoke his mind. And sometimes it was with some pretty colorful language. (laughs) But anyway, he got his point across. The king didn't like him very much, didn't trust him because... He was kind of going against um, the tide of what, uh, how England felt that this war should be fought. But Churchill was right, actually, and he he just fought for his way and uh, made it happen. And I, I don't know if any of you have 
have had the opportunity, but there has been a movie here in town called The Darkest Hour. Fabulous And it's film. about Churchill, and it really is. I went and saw it purposely to see if it was a little bit Hollywooded up, but it really was pretty well close to uh, what I know to be the truth. And I've actually been in that war room where most of that was filmed, where he strategized with just a small group of men and um, brought about what what plans they had and the way they would, you know, go about them during the war. And in the middle of the corridor of that place, it's, a, it's an old Victorian mansion, and they were down in the basement of it. So it was in the basement that the broom closet was. And when I speak about broom closet, it's the size of a room, because, of course, the maids would have to clean many stories in the house and so forth, so everything was kept down there in the basement. So everybody thought, who worked down there with Churchill, that it was his private toilet. And he let them think that. But it actually wasn't. Of course, nobody hung around outside it because they thought it was his toilet. <laughs> but in actual fact, <laughs> I won't say why, but in actual fact, um, uh, it was where the telephone was that he could communicate directly with President Roosevelt. So that was kind of the secret of that place at the time, and we actually could see that and uh, just look at all those things and realize that history was made here, you know. And many of the young women who worked for him as secretaries, they would come in in the morning, they would travel up probably to London by train, and if if something broke, if it was heavy, then he would have masses of correspondence that had to go out to different people. You know, we were very limited in our communication skills, not like we are today. And so uh, they would stay late, and then they would miss their train home. They were not allowed to say at home who they worked for, where they worked, anything. Their lips were totally sealed. It was just war secrets, and they kept those secrets. And many of them went to their graves without ever divulging that to their families or anything else. So, you know, it was a time when hearts were true and, you know, loose lips sink ships and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. so, you know, they, uh, they really did that. He was um, a hard taskmaster, and he required things done well and done right and done quickly and so forth. But he was a good man, and he was the man for the hour. So... You know, and I'm going to just ask a question that I've been thinking about. Uh, you know, when you get on your computer, uh, I have Microsoft, and there'll be some picture on the computer, and and there was something that came up today. It was a you know, pretty, it was a bridge or something, and it said, um, do something great today. And I, I just kind of looked at that, and I thought, I'm not sure that that's really the message that we need to be giving to each other all the time. I think that it's one of doing a job well, doing your best, and what you've just described is uh, something that Churchill, I think, believed. Yeah, ordinary people just doing the best that they could and keeping their secrets, doing their job, even though it cost them, you know, whatever it cost, you know, to do it. I mean, when you think of those men in their little boats, what chance did they have to evacuate that many people? Yet they did it, and they did it, and they did it until it was done. Mm. Well, they, they, everyone lived with purpose then, yeah. and everybody was pulling in the same direction. Yes, as a exactly. Team, you know? How I'd love to see that in this country, yes. that spirit. And I know we have it. We do have it's it. It's just 
a little buried here right now. Well, Anne Pearson, you know, one of the reasons that Kim and I do this World War II project is we feel like if we keep continue to share the truth of the stories about how great America was during the the Second World War and how so many other countries today, people still remember and and, and are so thankful. Like you said at the beginning, God bless the USA. We couldn't have done it without her. Um, You know, if we continue to tell those stories, then maybe people will, will start to realize that we should be pulling in the same direction today. Right. And our history was your history. Yeah. You know as well. Right. So we shared that. Yes. yes. Thank you. So, Anne, you know, we were talking about Winston Churchill, and he is one of my favorite, one of the favorite quotes, never, never, never give up, obviously. And, and during the war, uh, growing up, it had to be hard with the rationing. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, what, what, what was it like? How did you get food and what kind of food? And, you know, what did that look like at, during the Second World War? Well, there wasn't much of it, I can tell you that. (laughs) For a start, rationing was extremely stringent. I mean, it was one egg per person per week. It was a quarter of a pound of meat that had to have all the bone and skin and everything removed from it because when they put it on the scales, you had to have something you could eat for a quarter of a pound and not be throwing half of it away like we sometimes have to do today, you know, if it hasn't been properly prepared. So um, sugar was, of course, uh, tea and things like that were just very severely rationed. We in England can't grow tea or we don't have the climate for we all these things are imported and so forth shipping lanes were closed or used only for the most important war you know issues so we were kind of stuck in our little island with this very severe rationing so if you went to somebody's home for a visit the thing that would always be done i mean it's necessary is to put the pot on and have a cup of tea well unless they brought you a spoonful of tea leaves and if they took sugar a spoonful of sugar you couldn't do it we had water and milk but we didn't have anything else so people got so that they brought their own tea and their own sugar if they came to visit because they knew you simply didn't have it to give so it was that stringent and um, my my mom as I say never never had an egg for six years she gave it to me and um, you know it was it was really tough when you stand in line for hours just to get you know your rations for the day and we've no refrigeration of course so it was a daily task well you said Um, in the meat that uh, the four ounces of meat it wasn't just your beef or chicken was it no, no. We we had um, nasty things like tripe and uh, whale meat and horse meat and things like that. And it's it's not not very pleasant eating. And I do recall that my I would bulk at you know the meals sometimes, and my mother would say, you know, you, you need to eat it, Anne, because this is all we have. And think about the poor starving children in Poland. Well, <laughs> I would love to have made a donation. <laughs> give, give them your whale meat, huh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh. It would have been, and, it and would, tell us about, sorry, um, you'd mentioned in your, in your article on World War II as seen through the eyes of, chi- of a child, you'd mentioned the victory gardens, that, that you planted your own so that you could grow some food for yourself. How big was your victory garden and what did you have in it? Well, it was mostly vegetables, things like cabbage and Brussels sprouts and carrots and potatoes and that kind of thing that was, you know, substantial food stuff that you could pad a meal with sort of thing because with only a quarter of a pound of meat per person, you know, we had to have lots of veggies and so forth. So that uh, that was mainly what it was. But it, it helped, you know, we were able to sustain ourselves in some regard and save a little money, you know, by doing so. So. 
I don't think canning was in for that sort of thing at that time. Well, it's pretty difficult to can when you're concerned about you might be bombed, you know. Exactly, exactly. um, And you said you were 11 years old before you saw a banana, a melon, or a coconut. That's true. Well, of course, we don't grow those things in England. We don't have the climate for them, so everything like that is imported. So when I first saw a banana, I mean, I'd heard about them, but I'd never seen one and never tasted one, and that was just amazing. I always look at bananas with special reverence, even now today, when I can get them whenever I choose, because it was something that was withheld, you know, because of the times from us. Well, and it's blessed time here in America, because you can go to the grocery store and and it's not only bananas, it's the complete spectrum, and you can have different kinds. And yes. it's important that we realize that this doesn't just happen. It's because the, of, of liberty and free markets and the American idea that we're able to do that. Absolutely. Yes, that's so true. And the good old American know-how as well, you know. Well, we do. <laughs> they're, not, they're not held down by much, I don't think. <laughs> not well, for very long, anyway. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, well, the, the fog didn't only help you all. The fog helped us during the Revolutionary War as well. Yes, <laughs> We're thankful that's, for that's that. True. And, Garrison, so we talked about the, the rationing of the food. Let's talk about the rationing of clothes. I just, I you know... Because you people would ask that, Molly. Here, people, you know, growing up in America, I, I'm not familiar with that. And I was just speaking with a woman recently who said, as a child in World War II, I said, tell me something you remember. She said, I remember needing coupons for, for everything that I was going to buy, whether it was the sugar or the tea or clothes or what have you. And I'm reading your article here. You talked about that. That's right. And, I mean, you, you got a monthly ration book. So when your rations were gone, then that was too bad until the next month came along. So you had to really eat everything out so you could make it last for the month. Of course, if you had several people in the family, that was a help because each person had their own ration book. But of course, each person was being fed as well. There were just three of us. So, you know, we had to be very careful. But as far as clothing was concerned, um, I know that brides made their wedding dresses from parachute silk that had been scavenged after raids. And, and, um, you know, you, you just made, I, I, I sometimes think, we go shopping because it's, um, it's a distraction, a diversion. You know, well, I'll just go to the mall and poke around a bit sort of thing. We went shopping only when we had a need. You had, shoes had a hole in them, so you went and bought a pair of shoes, and then you came back home again. You know, I mean, it was a totally different mindset in those days, and, of course, there wasn't very much to be had anyway, so shopping wasn't a great experience, you know, even if you'd wish it to be. And, of course, candy was rationed. It was a real hardship. I've always been a big candy eater. I uh, would would be improved today if I had less of that, but um, perhaps it's a leftover from the fact that it was withheld as a child. I think we all like candy. Um, I think so. and one of the things also that you mentioned in your in your article is uh, about the American servicemen. It was your birthday. You were gonna you wanted a cake, but there wasn't enough sugar, right. and they decided that they were going to try to solve that problem for you. That's right. My father would go to the pub, as is a an English gentleman's wont, for a pint of beer and a game of darts. And there he met one evening two American servicemen who were, of course, a long way from home. One of the men, had, his wife had just had their first baby, and Aww. she had sent, she had put its little footprint on the letter and sent it, you know, and it was oh. a child he didn't yet know and longed to meet. And so they were homesick. And so my dad would bring them home so that they could just experience a little sort of a home feel anyway. We didn't have 
very much of anything to offer them except maybe a cup of tea, which they probably thought, dear heavens, don't these people know about coffee, which we really didn't <laughs> in those days. So anyway, um, you know, but it was the, the fellowship that was important and letting them talk about home and things like that. So I was coming up for a birthday, and so one of them said to my mother, well, uh, what kind of a cake are you going to make for Anne this year? And she said, well, I'm afraid this year there won't be any cake because we just don't have the sugar for it. So they said nothing, but then we didn't see them for weeks. And when we, they finally came on the scene again, my parents asked, where have you been? And they had been in the stockade because they had uh, appropriated a jeep and several pounds of sugar from the uh, uh-huh. and they were bringing it to us and they were caught by the uh, police on the gate you know of the base mm-hmm. and so forth and put in the stockade and my parents were absolutely devastated and they said, nothing is worth that don't do that ever again you know, please <laughs> not to mention the fact that we were fearful that they would come down on us for being the recipients of stolen goods you know. does somebody have a cake with sugar in here huh <laughs> did they oh, in, my- did you get the sugar or or did they just have to serve their time in the stockade? Oh, they just served their time, and that was confiscated, of course, yes. Oh, my <laughs> gosh, that's quite a story. Yes, but bless so. their hearts, anyway. <laughs> their hearts were in the right place, yeah. even if their hands were. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So. so, hey, Ann Garrison, let's go to break. Uh, there's a lot more that we want to talk to you about as your experience as a child in Britain during World War II. So let's go to break, and when we come back, some some other great stories. All right, thank you so much. Okay, welcome back to the AmeriChicks, Molly and Kim, our World War II project. Today we are talking with Ann Garrison. And be sure and check out our website, AmeriChicks.com. This will be posted within about 24 hours. All of our shows are there. Ann Garrison, it is just such a thrill to get to chat with you about your experience. You have written an amazing reference piece about when you were a child in Britain. And uh, we had just talked about a couple of American servicemen that had tried to appropriate some sugar for your birthday cake. And they got caught. You didn't see them for a while because they were in the stockade. So um, those Americans, Molly. <laughs> they wanted to... American ingenuity, I think they got. <laughs> well, and I think because your father was willing to, to listen to them and be kind to them and let their, them share their stories and, and visit your home, it probably did a lot a lot to, to really build up their, their morale. So they mm. wanted to give back. That's true. That is so true. So yes. let, let's talk a little bit more uh, about what was going on. You said that every house, by law had to be blacked out. What did that mean? What did that look like? Well, since we were only 15 miles from London, of course, I don't think it was so stringent in the country because the Germans weren't interested in the country. They wanted to do London in. And, of course, we were very close to London. So uh, at night time, of course, um, when you put the lights on to be able to read or knit or whatever you were doing, uh, didn't have any television in that day, um, you had to use blackout on every window, every door, anything where a chink of light could possibly be seen because amazingly, even a chink of light coming from a house can be seen in the air. So it would designate then where they were and what they could perhaps bomb and so forth. So every house had to be blackouted with blackout material. And we put these up in the evening times and then we could turn on the lights. And so um, my my mother, you know, um, would, would sit there in the evening times with me. And as I said, we were alone because Daddy was working. And we would hear the sound of the bombers coming over. And it was a distinct sound. You knew that from different from just an airplane. 
And so I would say, because I by now had a handle on this situation, and I would say to my mother, are they our boys? And my mother would go to the window, douse the lights, lift up the blackout curtain, and look up into the sky, which was, of course, completely dark because there were no street lights or anything else. And she would turn around and she would say, yes, they're our boys. So, of course, I was all good. And it didn't occur to me until years later that she was not only the most non-technical person I'd ever known (laughs) other than myself, but you can't look up into a darkened sky and read the insignia on a plane from that distance. So she was just comforting me, you know, with that story. But uh, anyway, that's the way it worked for us. And and your mother, uh, I I find it fascinating Two things that stand out is, first of all, she shared her egg with you, uh, you know, for the complete time of the war and people were hungry. And then also this just a quick little description about your mom. Well, my mother was um, a seasoned nurse um, when my father married her from one of the larger hospitals in London, so she was very capable. She gave her time unstintingly to, you know, when someone died in the street, you know, my mother would go and um, tend to them and, you know, lay out the body and so forth because, you know, things like funeral homes and... There was nothing was working like it should. You know, the operations were seriously down from everyday needs. So she would give her skills where she could. She was an excellent mother. She she was a good seamstress. She she just kept the home fires going while my father um, was working all night. You know, making the Spitfire and. You know, when there would be a bombing raid, and she would go out onto the front doorstep when the raid was over and look in the direction of his factory, and he was stepping outside his factory on his break, looking in the direction of our home and hoping and hoping that we had not been hit, and we the same for him. So you lived life on a very thin wire, Mm. you know, (laughs) during the war. Mm. And there was so much devastation from these bombing raids. And what did the king and queen do? Talk a little bit about that. Well, that was that was a very. I can remember those sites. They're so engraved on my mind. Even our street was never bombed like that. But some areas took a terrible beating, and men would. Um, their work from from uh, being abroad or wherever they were serving, they would come home and they would be looking for their family. And um, they not only couldn't find their family, they couldn't find their street because it was total rubble. There was nothing to be seen. There was not a brick standing on a brick, you know, just piles of rubble. So that was devastating. They would be saying, you know, have you seen the Brown family? You know, have you seen? And somebody would say, well, uh, the Salvation Army was here or some organization was here. And I think they went to a certain shelter and, you know, they would try to be helpful. And sweetest of all was that the morning after these raids, right there on the streets, handing out soup and bread and whatever they could was the King and Queen of England. I mean, standing on the broken down streets, tending to their people. And the English people would say, please go into the country, go where you're safe, you're important to us, you know. And they said, no, if our people have to withstand this every night, then we can do no less. And they stayed the whole war. And they, they of course, were in London, Buckingham Palace is in London, but they were there on the streets, serving soup, tending to the people, offering their, you know, comfort and condolences, whatever was needed. So they were really 
great troopers and greatly loved. Leadership. There, people can be in front of a crowd. That does not mean they're a leader. Uh, leadership. Uh, there's not a whole lot of people that are are good leaders. I mean, certainly Hitler was a leader. He had people follow him as well. But to have a virtuous uh, leader who cares for their people is is really the best. One of the things you had mentioned, though, was was prayer. And I recently had uh, attended an event where they talked about George Washington, that he prayed a lot. And you mentioned that Churchill prayed. And one thing regarding the moving Dunkirk, somebody had mentioned to me is that Churchill had asked the British people to pray. And that was not portrayed in the movie. And I just thought that was interesting. Not sure if that's true or if you know, but I thought I'd ask you about that. Um, well, there was actually a man, and it was in this, this this mansion that I mentioned in the basement where the war room was and where the strategy was and where the broom closet was and so on and so forth. He was a man that was working there. I don't know what his position was, but he was on Churchill's staff. And he must have been a Christian man because he kind of rallied like the secretaries and the different people that were serving there during the course of the day. And he asked them if they would pause for one minute at a certain time of the day and it was usually the evening time, for one minute at that time, everybody would just down pencils, pens, stop the typewriters, whatever, and pray for the safety of England. And, you know, we had been withstanding the Battle of Britain and then lambasting that we were getting all day and all night long and so forth, especially the nights. And, you know, it seemed to abate somewhat. And I just feel as if God answered those prayers because of their, you know, sincerity and their faithfulness to do it every single day at a certain time for one minute. And through that, Churchill really rallied the people, uh, didn't he? He did indeed. He did indeed. And some of his speeches were just amazing. I mean, he was a dramatic speaker, and he could really stir your heart. And uh, I know that after Dunkirk, um, he went to Parliament the next day, that was June 4th, and he said, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. So that was the kind of thing that he said to Parliament, so we can imagine. He, and then, of course, that would be broadcast on the radio, and we would all hear that as well. So. Well, and that encouragement, I'm sure, was much needed because the evil that you were up against, and yeah. it, it was pretty bad. I'm, I'm reading next in your article, World War II, as seen through the eyes of a child. You, you talked about Adolf Hitler's V1 and V2 hydrogen bombs. Tell yes. us about those. Yes, that was that was getting towards the end of the war. Then <clears throat> um, I guess they had got we'd got better shots, or got t- they'd got tired of losing their planes and so forth. So they had developed something they called the buzz bomb, and this was like sort of like a barrage balloon type thing. It was unmanned, and it would come over across the you know the twenty one miles sort of thing, so it didn't have far to fly. And then I presume it would be um, you know set up to go off at a certain time. But what it would do was it would buzz, 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 buzz like that as it traveled over the, along the air waves there. And you could hear it. And that was okay. 
but when it stopped buzzing, it fell right out of the sky, and it did such terrible devastation. I don't know what was in it. I haven't researched that, and of course, at the time, I just didn't care. I just wanted not for it not to drop on me. Mm-hmm. But um, then after that, they got much more sophisticated, and they developed the V1 and the V2, and they were hydrogen bombs, and they were truly deadly. And one, in fact, did drop in our neighborhood, and it, um, we were standing on our front doorstep saying goodbye to a guest. And when this thing dropped, it blew our skirts over our head. There was such a, an impact. You know, it just, it just literally lifted us off and blew our skirts up. And uh, we, learned, we later learned that um, a troop of uh, WAFs, Women's Air Force, were marching back to camp uh, on the street where that fell. And that whole contingent died that day. And there were limbs in trees and in the canal. And it was a devastating, devastating loss of those wonderful young women who were willing to serve their country and um, and were annihilated by a V1 or V2 bomb. So they were bad. But that was getting towards the end of the war then. So I think, um, as uh, Winston said, they were pretty lousy shots when they came over. So we lost a lot of good churches and nice <laughs> shops and buildings and stuff like that. But uh, we didn't lose any armaments factories or railway yards, you know, that were central to, our, you know, doing business as it were. So. Well, I, 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 it makes you wonder, I just thinking about uh, the God thing and all that as well. And, and it did mean that there was not tremendous devastation. I mean, the story about these women, women's Air Force group or troop that was killed, I, it... <laughs> It, it's really astonishing to hear this act, these actual reports. I'm reading a couple of different World War II books that were written. Uh, one of them was written by the son of a World War II veteran. And as you really think about the individual um, commitment, devastation, the last full measure of devotion, uh, it makes me even want to double down, Molly, on what we're doing here because it is so important that these stories be, be shared. I'm going to go over to just a, a little more of a, a lighthearted thing, and that is is your shrapnel collection. I found, oh. I found that fascinating as a child. Most <laughs> kids uh, uh, you know, get baseball cards or whatever, but you had shrapnel, huh? Um, Well, when the planes had been overnight in perhaps Germany or in a sortie of some sort, and they were coming back home in the early hours of the morning or the early early hours of the day, um, and they would fly over our house. And we, of course, knew by the insignia who they were, you know, what they were and so forth. The planes didn't seem to fly very high at that time anyway. And I know that has to be true because I was low to the ground in those days. So I, I know that I could see them quite well. But anyway, if they'd been in battle at all, they probably got a little bit shot up, you know, and they they had bits that hung off or dropped off as they flew over. And they might be shrapnel from, you know, the other plane's attack on them, or it could be a piece of metal or a bit of material because planes had a lot of material in them in those days, you know, canopy and things like that. And so if we got a bit of that, especially if it had markings on it, I mean, that was really top of the list sort of thing. And the boy next door, John, well, he just couldn't quite come up to my shrapnel collection. I was, <laughs> was a bit green with envy. <laughs> so, uh, oh, that anyway. is, that 
that and that is funny. I mean, even in war, you know, kids uh, figure out ways to to you know have fun and entertain themselves. So yes, yes. Go ahead. Well, another story uh, as a child, this story about the British Spitfire and the Messerschmitt. I think people would love to hear that. Certainly. Well, there wasn't very much in the way of entertainment, of course. And, of course, the British are great walkers. So on a Sunday afternoon after church and so forth, my family would often take a walk. And there was a, a, a place called the Village Green, and it had a very old church in it and so forth, and a pub called the Load of Hay. And so we walked that day down there, and my father decided he would like to have a beer. And, of course, children aren't allowed in the pubs. And um, so I sat outside with my mother on the bench, and my dad went in and brought us back a lemonade each. And we sat there just enjoying the Sunday afternoon sun and drinking our lemonade and so forth, when all of a sudden the air raid siren went off. Well, we had nowhere to go. So we just sat on the bench by the pub, you know, and just kind of held our breath. And then we saw uh, a German plane flying over towards us, lumbering along there. And, you know, we were holding our breath. Was it a bomber? What, what, what was going to happen? And suddenly there had been a most beautiful horse racing track quite close to the village. And um, they had decimated that and made a small airfield out of it. And out of that airfield comes a little spitfire, flies right up into the air. It's like a kind of a gnat, you know, and an <laughs> elephant together sort of thing. They, they immediately, uh, he, he came upon him and immediately engaged, and they, you know, shot some rounds and so forth. And the spitfire hit the plane to the extent where the canopy came open and the pilot floated down to earth. And we're just sort of open-mouthed and wide-eyed watching this unfold before our eyes. We have a front-row seat to this, you know. And um, it turned out he was like a 19-year-old German boy, totally unarmed. We are unarmed as people we don't carry. So all the farmers that lived in that area had were their pitchforks. So they just hustled to the field and they circled this young pilot with their pitchforks and just kept him safe until the local Bobby, you know, the constabulary came along and hauled him off to jail. So it was a very exciting moment in our lives to see that aerial fight and to see the outcome of the fight uh, just right before our eyes. David and Goliath. You got it. (laughs) Hey, Ann Garrison, we are out of time. I knew, Molly, that we would have uh, a lot more that we want to talk to Ann about. So, Ann, we're going to need to get you on for some for the rest of the story. How does that sound? Well, that sounds wonderful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll see what I can come up with, but give me some uh, lead time. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll do that. So, Thank you so much for your time, Ann. We appreciate it. Uh, World joy. War II is seen through the eyes of a child, and she, she was raised 15 miles away from where the battle was taking place, the Battle of Britain.